The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome Robert McCaleb. He is the founder and president of the Herb Research Foundation based in Boulder, Colorado. This is an internationally recognized research and education organization dedicated to proving facts on the health benefits of herbs. He has more than 20 years' experience in botanical research and business. For example, he was research director for Celestial Seasonings, which is America's largest herbal tea company for 13 years. He has served on the board of directors of the American Herbal Products Association and Herb Trade Association. He was one of five scientists appointed by President Clinton to serve on the Commission on Dietary Supplement Labels. He has also been an advisor to the U.S. Congress, the Office of Dietary Supplements, and the Office of Alternative Medicine. He is well-educated in cellular biology and botany. He has degrees from the University of Texas and the University of Colorado, and he is currently a Ph.D. candidate in ethnobotany. I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. McCaleb at the Healthy Beverage Advisory Expo, and we both serve on the Healthy Beverage Advisory Board, and I've been so impressed with his knowledge that I wanted to bring him to you. So welcome, Rob. Thank you, Melinda. Good to be here. Well, I had the pleasure of attending the session that you gave at the Healthy Beverage Expo last year in Las Vegas, and you just did such a fabulous job reviewing popular herbs, some dangers, some of the things that consumers should be aware of. So let's backtrack just a moment and learn a little bit about how you got to where you are. What was it exactly that sparked your interest in this field? Well, I wonder how many people have a personal healing story around herbs. Mine was many years ago, back in, I guess it was 1972, I was suffering from bronchitis that had gone on for a week. I had been using all of the drugstore remedies that I thought would be appropriate, and they had stopped working for reasons that I didn't understand. But I was in health food store. I was a shopper and maniac for things like sprouts and whole grains that were uh, pretty unusual at the time back in the early 70s. I picked up an herb book and looked up cough remedies and found ginger. I said, okay, well, I don't even have to buy that. I've got it at home. I'll just make a tea and see if it works. Well, it did. It worked spectacularly well, uh, better than the -the over-the-counter drugs had been working. And that really got me thinking, what other effective, safe, kitchen-type remedies are there that have been abandoned by modern medicine, not because they don't work or because they're unsafe, but just because, well, who knows, because they're not profitable, because they're not favored by the FDA. And, well, what a journey of discovery that has been, learning all about how regulations and profit motive essentially put nature's medicine kind of in the back room and brought all the synthetics forward as the things that we are supposed to rely on as safe, effective medicines. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to ask you how you made your tea. 
I put a half a teaspoon of ginger powder from the grocery store, a little bit of honey and hot water, and I sipped it. And it, it's an expectorant. It works by loosening your bronchi and allowing you to rid yourself of that congestion in the chest. It's, uh, it's been used for that purpose for thousands of years, and surprising how well it works. Well, your website is a real treasure trove of just this kind of information. And just to let our listeners know, that website is herbs.org. And you can go and find easy-to-read, fun-to-read reviews of different herbs, the top science, the top articles that you may see in the press, and have that information analyzed and deconstructed and made very easy to apply to our own lives. Okay, so let me ask you a little bit about some popular herbs and also their regulation. I'm glad you brought up the whole issue of profit motive and who controls what we have access to, but I wonder how herbal products in particular are regulated and how that regulation differs from, say, a pharmaceutical that you need a prescription for. Okay. Well, it's a great question, and I think there's a a lot of misconception in the public about the regulation of herbal products and other dietary supplements, and that's in part on purpose. That is, there's an effort to convince people that there should be a type of regulation for dietary supplements that belongs in the drug realm. So herbs have always been regulated as foods, but because claims are made for them in terms of health benefits, this was something the doctors and the pharmaceutical industry didn't like very much, and neither did the FDA. So there have been attempts throughout the years to push herbs into the prescription drug or at least the over-the-counter drug category and prevent their sale without a doctor's order. That has always been met with uh, enormous resistance by the consuming public. I think people know that these are safe and helpful remedies, and they're not the same as these fast-acting drugs that are usually used for symptomatic relief. So I think the first attack on dietary supplements in general was back in the 60s, and there have been several since then with the FDA and their supporters getting congressional action to pass laws that would require a doctor's prescription to buy herbal products. That's never gone anywhere, and in fact, in 1994, with the passage of the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, the United States went from being one of the most hostile environments on earth for natural remedies to one of the most supportive. So it is a compromise between food and drug regulation that has a separate standard for safety that is actually a higher standard for safety than over-the-counter or prescription drugs, not in terms of prior proof, but in terms of the actual standard. That is, a drug is allowed to cause harm if the benefit exceeds it. Not the case with herbal remedies. If there is uh, sound evidence that it can cause harm, then it can be removed from the market. So on the safety standpoint, we have herbs at kind of a pinnacle of safety language. That is, the safety that's required of them is not required of any other foods or drugs. In terms of effectiveness, They don't have to be proven in the way that new prescription drugs are. But I think people misunderstand that most of the drugs we take on a daily basis never met that gold standard of evidence. All of the over-counter drugs were approved in the same way that herbs have been throughout the world. That is, 
an expert panel that knows and uses these, a panel of doctors, says, yes, we know echinacea supports the immune system and is safe. We've used it with lots of patients and so on. And they approve it based on their knowledge of it and the literature that they can find rather than on new scientific testing. So I'm glad you brought up echinacea because it's one of those plants, and I'm sure this applies to all of the herbal supplements, that it's the part of the plant is important, the season in which it's harvested, the growing conditions can affect whether or not it's as effective, say, than another season of harvest. And I wonder, how does a consumer know how much of an active ingredient is indeed in a product, and is that somehow accounted for? Is there a label? I go into the herbal supplement store, and I see all of these products on the shelf, and I don't know how to be a good consumer to tease out those different factors that, it, that can impact the strength of the active ingredient. It is a complicated marketplace out there, and I sympathize with you. I have the same issues with trying to keep on top of who are the best companies, the most trustworthy products. In terms of the quantity of a substance that's in a product, I would look for a standardized product that declares that in cases where the active compounds are known. And that latter thing is a whole can of worms because most botanicals, we know what they do and we have some evidence that they're effective and safe, but we don't always know how they work or what chemical compounds within them are active. That whole idea of active compounds or active ingredients is drug terminology. And in many cases, we don't know, even after lots and lots of research, what is the active or uh, active constituent or constituents in a plant. And I'm going to go back to ginger as an example. There's uh, evidence from clinical trials all the way up to NASA of experiments with astronauts showing that ginger is effective against motion sickness. Well, they have taken apart ginger and tried every compound that they thought would be active, and they've tested them, found some to be effective, but nothing they have found in ginger is as effective as ginger in its whole form. That's so it may be the synergy between all of the compounds in a plant. We, at this point, for many cases, we just don't know. That's so funny that you say that because it's the same way with food. I remember studying, say, tomatoes, right? We know that they have all of these health benefits. But when scientists have tried to take out individual compounds and prove their effectiveness, they find that it's actually the synergy of all of the compounds together that are the most effective. So I always say, you know, food is really medicine, and we shouldn't try to fraction out all these little components. And it's the same way with herbs, it seems. So it's very interesting. We should just follow nature's prescription. Let me ask you a little bit about adulteration, because that comes up often, too. You know, I'm sure that of many, many hundreds of products without adulteration, the one that is adulterated is the one that gets the press. How likely is adulteration, and should we be more concerned about products, say, coming in from China or other countries internationally than we would be from products made here in the United States? How do I know what the best source is with regard to preventing adulteration? Well, with adulteration or any kind of contamination of a product, you just have to look at the reputation of the company you're buying from. That's pretty much the best advice I can give. It would be nice if there was a simple way to say plants from this country are not reliable. 
then you'd really have a, a solid way of picking and choosing. But that's not the case. We found adulteration can, can be an issue with imported products or ones that come from the United States. And basically, in any industry that makes money, you'll have a few opportunists who will try to make more money by cheating their buyer, and that's pretty much what happens. So I look for companies that have a reputation to protect. If they get caught adulterating or cheating on an ingredient, that can have very serious implications for their business. So it's hard to just say stick with the major brands. It's not like they are immune from their suppliers pulling fast ones on them. But if they have sufficient lab testing protocols and quality assurance within their company, it's possible for them to make sure that they're delivering exactly what they're promising. And does the FDA then have oversight before the product goes to the market? Or is it a situation where the product goes to the market assumed as safe and effective, and if there's a problem after that, then the product can be pulled? Well, it depends on whether it's a new product or an old existing product. And that's true of all foods and drugs, too, that when the laws were written requiring certain kinds of approval, those substances that were common in use before the date of that legislation are generally grandfathered. So that's the case in foods with all common food additives like salt and baking soda and baking powder, all kinds of food compounds and chemicals that were already in the food supply prior to the passage of that law back in 1958. In the case of botanicals, anything that was used in an herbal supplement or vitamin supplement for that matter, prior to 1994, October of 94 specifically, anything that was in common use before then is considered to be safe unless the Secretary of Health and Human Services or the FDA thinks it's unsafe and can come up with evidence that shows that there's a safety problem with it. For those things that are introduced into supplements after October of 94, if it's a new ingredient, then yes, it goes through a pre-approval process where it's called an NDI or a new dietary ingredient. A petition has to be sent to the FDA with evidence that it's safe and what it does and where it was used and so on, and then the FDA will make a decision about whether that's going to be allowed in supplements going forward. Okay, listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Mr. Rob McCaleb. He is the founder and president of the Herb Research Foundation based in Boulder, Colorado. He's had enormous experience both working for the industry. He was research director for Celestial Seasonings. He was there for 13 years, but he's also worked with the U.S. government, the Office of Dietary Supplements, the Office of Alternative Medicine, and he is well-educated in cellular biology and botany. He's received degrees from the University of Texas and the University of Colorado, and he is currently a Ph.D. candidate in ethnobotany. Well, Rob, why don't we launch into some specific products that I think are popular and potentially very healing. I cannot recommend green tea enough. I have seen such great data on the antioxidant properties, the anti-cancer properties with green tea, and the compound in particular that seems to be so effective is this EGCG. Now, would you agree that green tea is on the top of your list as well? Well, it absolutely is. Uh, It's on the top of my list, not just for supplementation, but for uh, sipping for its wonderful flavor and the diversity of different green teas that are available. Let me also mention that there is 
Also, great research on black tea, on oolong teas, on pu'er teas. So basically, everything with the Camellia sinensis plant in it appears to have remarkable health properties, including antioxidant properties, cardio or heart protective properties, beneficial effects on the immune system, beneficial effects on digestion, especially digestion and metabolism of fats, some good evidence on weight loss strategies involving the both the thermogenic property of green tea, or that is its, its ability to in, increase the metabolic rate, and also those fat meta- metabolizing effects that seem to be synergistic with the fat burning factors in the plant. So it's an amazing plant. I'm a huge fan. It's uh, If I only had to have one supplement, it would be tea, because uh-huh. I sure wouldn't want to give that up. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say that. I, I have come to the same conclusions just in looking at the nutritional data. And I have to ask now, because brewing, of course, is an important component of how we extract the beneficial compounds. And I was at a lecture probably 10 or 12 years ago where an herbalist was describing how important it is to have tea that's freshly brewed. So in other words, if you stop at the quick shop and you get a green tea beverage in, say, the cooler, and we don't know how long it's been sitting there, that probably won't have the same level of beneficial antioxidant compounds as one that you brew yourself and drink, say, within 30 minutes. Okay. Well, everything breaks down with time, and it's true that when you extract something into water that you start a process that can reduce its effectiveness. The compounds in tea are pretty durable, so I would expect to find good antioxidant properties even in a bottled tea. Of course, the caffeine doesn't go anywhere. It's alkaloids, the chemical class that caffeine belongs to, are extremely durable. They've found active alkaloids in the tombs of the pharaohs and such. I mean, this is definitely a, a very hardy chemical compound, and the antioxidants are as well. So I would expect to find good activity with a packaged product as well as the fresh product. Of course, it's going to taste better if you brew it fresh, and I believe that is when it is at its peak of antioxidant potential when you first brew it. So yes, there is a decline when something is in a can, in a bottle, or on your shelf for that matter, but the decline in the case of tea, fortunately, is pretty slow. Now, when you were at Celestial Seasonings, I know that on my boxes of tea, there's an expiration date or best used by. Is that somehow scientifically determined, or should we just expect that if we're buying a package of tea, just like any other food product, you want to use it as close to purchase time as possible, but does tea have a certain standard shelf life? Well, it does. It probably has more than one shelf life. There's a shelf life of the flavor, and that's going to vary according to the herb. You have some, especially well, like the mints, for example, that from fresh to not so fresh is only a matter of, oh, six, eight, ten months maybe, you can tell a difference in it. Whereas something like tea, probably two, four years, uh, there, there are teas now that are a couple of decades old that are still just fine. So it really does depend on the plant. As for the shelf life dating, that's required, by the way, on food and supplement packages. And in the case of food 
you're just talking about freshness. It's probably the flavor that deteriorates first, and so companies want to make sure that if your tea is so old that the flavor has degraded because of time, they want people to throw that away and get something fresh so they're getting the the proper flavor of it. In terms of activity, that is taken very seriously uh, by the FDA, and it's required that uh, supplement be labeled with that best by date and that that be determined by testing. Uh, It can be determined by accelerated shelf life testing, which quadruples the length of time. So in six months, you can tell what's going to happen in two years with the product. But even with that, the FDA now requires that you also put a product immediately into real-time shelf life testing. So you've got your approval based on your quick accelerated test, and then you have your real-time test where something is actually stored for the two years and then taken out and laboratory tested to make sure that it is delivering what it promised on day one that's still delivering that on uh, the 24-month period. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is very helpful to know. Now, let's bring up another kind of beverage. It's fermented tea or kombucha, which is very popular right now, and I went to your website and indeed, you have information about that. Years ago, and I'm talking probably 20 years ago, when I was working in extension, I remember that there was some research or there was some concern about the safety of some of these kombucha products. Tell me what you know about kombucha and what the consumer can think about these products. There are so many on the shelf, and it seems like this is a really popular and growing area. It is. Kombucha is very popular. I'm not real fond of it myself, but... There is some research on it showing that it has some beneficial properties. A word about that, the safety concerns about kombucha. As far as I know, there have not been issues with commercially packaged kombucha products, but kombucha can be made pretty easily by anyone in their kitchen. And it's important if you do that to make sure that you're following the kind of cleanliness protocols that keeps that product from getting contaminated because it is a fermented product and it is uh, susceptible to what's airborne. And so if you have airborne pathogens that could get into it, it's possible to have a spoiled batch of kombucha that could cause illness. And so that's where some of those cautionary statements have come from, is from people home-brewing their kombucha. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but just like making any other fermented product like Um, sauerkraut or beer or wine or anything that undergoes a fermentation process, it's really important to keep your procedures very clean as if you're in a bacteriological laboratory because essentially that's what you're doing. You're growing microbes in tea and sugar. Mm -hmm. Now, another product that there was some concern with, this is about a weight loss product, and it's Senna. And it's the one natural product that I, I am a little concerned about because I've read instances where women generally use this tea as a way to lose weight, but it can cause diarrhea and severe diarrhea. At least that's my understanding. So I'd like to get your understanding of this product. Is it something that women should be concerned about? Well, now, Sen is something that I have had concerns about myself for a long time. This has been a very popular uh, approach to dieting for a long time. There are a couple of problems with it. I'd say from an effectiveness standpoint, the first problem is that mostly what you get is water loss with a laxative product. Sen is a laxative. It's a very popular laxative and and it crosses the line between food products, supplement products, 
and drug products. It has been consumed as a tea. It has been consumed as a supplement. It is still approved as an over-the-counter remedy for constipation. So it is a laxative and carries the cautions that a laxative product does. One of the most important is that it's addictive. That is, you uh, get a laxative dependence if you use laxatives regularly, for example, on a daily basis. And then when you stop using the laxative, you have the other problem. So that's one of the big concerns is with people taking a laxative product as a slimming aid. They're taking it every day. They're looking for long-term effects but they're using something that is affecting their uh, intestines directly in a way that when you stop, you have to recover from that dependence that you've created in yourself by using a stimulant laxative product. Now, that said, low doses of Santa have been used for a long time. I'm well aware that there are huge health risks of obesity as well as the relatively minor health risks of using a laxative product to lose weight. So if it can be combined into a a program that includes healthful food and some sensible input from a healthcare practitioner, I believe it can be successfully and safely used for dieting. But again, there are a lot of cautions with that one because it is so active. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been asking you all of my questions. I want to give you a chance to bring forth some of the herbal products or supplements on the market that you feel especially enthusiastic about? Well, thank you. I guess, first thing, I just really encourage people to learn a lot if they use herbs, if they want to use herbs in their health care, to really embark on self-education. Self-education is the key to successful, safe, and effective use of botanicals or any alternative medical therapy. The more you know about it, the better you can protect yourself and find the most effective things, use them in the safest and most recommended fashion, and really get the benefit out of them without enduring any risk. As for the supplements I like, I think in general, I believe that herbs are best used for maintaining and promoting health rather than for acute treatment of disease. They're certainly useful for both things. They've been used for both. But when we look at the uh, the research evidence, we find really major benefits of, uh, like we mentioned, green tea, all the tea products for protection against uh, cancer, heart disease, weight loss, energy, all of those things. Ginger, we talked about as a respiratory aid and also for um, upset stomach and motion sickness. It's also been researched for morning sickness. It's safe enough to be used by pregnant women. Love echinacea, astragalus, the um, immune stimulants. I successfully use those along with vitamin C and zinc to ward off colds season after season without being sick just by recognizing when you're exposed to something and taking action right away to prevent it from happening. I think that's the best and most effective way to use to use herbs. Got to mention saw palmetto for preventing prostate enlargement. We don't know how effective it is preventively because all the research is for people who already have impairment, but there's an extrapolation that takes place with a lot of botanical remedies where the research is done with impaired populations, like Alzheimer's populations with ginkgo, uh, people with uh, men with prostate uh, enlargement and uh, salt palmetto and other lots of uh, lots of examples of that, because it's easier to find an effect in a population that's already impaired. But if just as an example, salt palmetto can 
prevent the progression of prostate enlargement in someone who is symptomatic. Maybe it can prevent someone who isn't symptomatic from ever becoming symptomatic. And that's kind of the leap of faith that people are taking in using nutritional and botanical remedies uh, is that if it helps an impaired population, then maybe it can keep me from becoming impaired in the first place. Well, Rob, we'll have to leave it at that and make sure that people go to your website for more information. It is a wealth of resources and research reviews. Again, that website is simply herbs.org. We've been speaking with Mr. Robert McCaleb. He is the founder and president of the Herb Research Foundation and a wealth of information. I want to thank you for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Rob, thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you, Linda. Thank you.